Hey, good morning, and welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, Groups Minister here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So we had the uh, 4th of July a couple weeks ago, and uh, it was fantastic. I got to watch the fireworks with my son. This was the first year that he really gets it, and so uh, I love the fireworks, all right? There are other things I like about the 4th of July. I like eating hot dogs and getting sunburned and these kind of things, but I am just like a kid when it comes to fireworks. I just stand there and point up at the sky and say things like, sparkly, you know? I just love fireworks, super fun, and uh, so we really enjoyed it this year. There was a time, though, a couple years ago, when uh, we went to watch fireworks at a particular venue, and we were hot, we were frustrated. It was like 10.45 when they finally started the fireworks show, so like an hour after it had already been pretty dark. And so finally, they start the fireworks show, they start playing the patriotic music, and we're just sitting there and enjoying ourselves. We're finally relaxing. It's been a long day, we're hot and sweaty, and so they're doing these, uh, these fireworks. And then all of a sudden, this guy behind us whose sobriety is, let's say, questionable, starts screaming out at the top of his lungs phrases that I think that he thought were patriotic, but were actually just kind of weird, okay? So the fireworks are going, a new song would come on, you know, proud to be an American or something, and this guy would yell out, this is my home, like that, all right? This is my home, and we're like, this, this is our home too, shh, we're trying to enjoy the fireworks, you know? And then a new song would come on, and he would scream out, come and take it. Come and take it. And we're like, there are no British troops here to take your firearms, sir. What do you mean, come and take it? America, this is my home. And he just does this the entire time, all right, screaming. And every time a new song would come on, he would well up with passion and yell out something else that was kind of weird, okay? All right, so it was something that was kind of strange, sort of patriotic, but not really. And there was a song that he particularly enjoyed, and it's the song, Born in the USA. You know what song I'm talking about? Born in the USA. It's a song by Bruce Springsteen. And uh, here is what is really ironic about that song. That song is actually not patriotic if you go read the words. So all across America, every 4th of July, they play patriotic music. And one of the songs they play is Born in the USA. But no one ever stops to actually look at the lyrics. That's not a patriotic song. That's actually a song critiquing America. It's a critique of industrialization, it's a critique of capitalism, but specifically, it's a critique of the Vietnam War. To be born in the USA means that you have to go fight in a war that you don't believe in, and then when you come back, everyone hates you and it's hard to get a job. That's what the point of that song is. But people don't ever take the time to read it. They just assume because it says born in the USA, it must be patriotic. Well, the reason I tell you that story is because that's kind of how I felt preparing for this sermon this morning. I, I, I assumed I already knew what the text was about. When it was originally assigned to me, I thought, I already know what this is about, no big deal. But as I actually started to look at the lyrics, as I actually started to look at the words, I realized this text actually seems to say some things I didn't expect. So let that be a lesson to all of us when we interpret the Bible. The number one way to misinterpret a text of Scripture is to assume that you already know what it means. When you do that, you'll read your assumption back onto the text. Well, last week, Jeff Ashley talked about the book of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is about what God has done for us in Christ and the gospel, and the second half of Ephesians is how we should live in light of that fact. 
Now, that's not a cooperation. That doesn't mean God did 90% of your salvation and now you go do 10%. God did 100% of it. Christ has already married you. And now we're learning, now that we're already married, what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. That's specifically what we're doing today, okay? Now, last week, he talked about unity, how the gospel doesn't just create a reconciliation between God and man vertically, although it does do that. It also creates reconciliation between man and his fellow man, okay? It has a horizontal dimension. So we talked about unity last week. We're going to talk about unity next week, and this text serves as this kind of strange bridge where it's surrounded by text on unity, but this text is going to be about individuals, It's going to say that grace was given to each one of us. It's now going to talk about our role as individuals within the church. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 7, okay? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Before I get into what grace and gift means here, let me just summarize these verses for you this morning. Here's the point of this text. Because Christ has been victorious over his enemies, he has given his followers' gifts, but we're to use our gifts for the edification and the building up of the body, the church, okay? That Christ has been successful. He's conquered his enemies, demons, and because he's been successful, everything belongs to him, and he gives gifts, therefore, to his followers, but the gifts aren't just to culminate on us. The gifts are to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. That's the point of this text. So let's break this down. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you're going to drop a soldier into battle, you don't just drop them off without any weapons or any tools or any training or any leaders that tell them what to do, okay? That would not be a very successful mission. You give them gifts. You give them tools. You give them a rifle, and you give them spare magazines, and you give them comm equipment, and you give them body armor, and you give them training, and you have officers and such, and leaders, and these kind of things, okay? Well, Christ does the same thing. He has given us a mission as his church, and that mission is to make disciples of all nations. Go get all seven billion people in the world to submit to Jesus. That's a big mission. Well, he has not left us without gifts, without tools, without equippings, without weapons. He has given us by the Holy Spirit what are typically called spiritual gifts. Now, we're not going to get into all the controversial things around spiritual gifts today. We're not afraid to do that. That's just not the point of this text. For that, you have to go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The point of this text is to say whatever way God has equipped you, use it for ministry. Use it for the building up of the church. The kind of gifts given to the church are anything that can be used to build up the church. If you look down in verse 11 next week, it says that these are the kind of people given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They're people that have certain giftings in the first century to be used to build up the church. We have certain giftings today to be used to build up the church, okay? 2 Timothy 1.6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here, Paul writes to Timothy and says, you've been given a certain spiritual gift, Use it, and use it for ministry. Timothy is a minister. Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You see the idea of gift and grace here, just like we did in this passage in Ephesians 4, 7, here in Ephesians 3, 7, which was given me by the working of his power, okay? So the point here is that God gives us certain gifts to be used for the edification of the church. Now, anybody in here ever taken a spiritual gifts test, spiritual gifts inventory? Go ahead. Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. I've taken one. Uh, There are some things I don't love about spiritual gifts tests. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, a lost person could take it 
and be shown to have spiritual gifts, though they don't have the Spirit, okay? Number two, it's kind of individualistic. It doesn't take into account what other people see in you, what the community around you sees in you. You're just kind of assessing yourself, which I think can be dangerous. And then number three, and this is the biggest one, every spiritual gifts test I've ever seen assumes that when Paul mentions certain gifts, for example, in 1 Corinthians, that those gifts, that, that, that's an exhaustive list, that those are the only gifts that exist, right? As if you're reading through and you say, well, I don't have one of these five or six gifts, therefore I don't have a gift. Let me say something that's really important. The gifts mentioned in the New Testament are not exhaustive. They're just a sample. It doesn't mean there is only a, so many of them. Any gift, in fact, that you've been given that can be used to edify and build up the church is a gift from God. What about natural abilities? There's no such thing as natural abilities. Everything is a gift from God, okay? So the point is that if you are equipped in any way, if you are talented in any way, if you have a gifting in any way that can be used to build up the church, that's a gift given to you by God to be used for the edification of the church. Let me give you an example. So I enjoy shooting. One of my hobbies is uh, shooting. And uh, there are things I don't like and things I do like about going to the gun range, okay? Let me tell you about the things I don't like, and then I'll tell you about the thing I most like about going to the gun range. So the things I don't like, when I go to the gun range, the thing I don't like is there's always a few people there that don't know what they're doing, and that makes me nervous and stressed. Okay, let me give you, let me just give you three of the kind of people that don't know what they're doing. The first guy I don't like at the gun range is the guy who's a newbie. He's a brand new shooter. He doesn't know anything about shooting because he's super unsafe. He'll be shooting, and his gun will malfunction, and he will then do this, and he will point the gun at his face as he looks down to the barrel to see what the problem is, okay? All right? That guy. Or he'll make a great shot, and then he will turn with his gun in hand across the line and flag everybody with that gun, and we all hit the floor. We're like, oh, my gosh, we're going to die. All right? So that guy, the new guy, he's dangerous. The second guy I don't like at the gun range is the guy that leaves his hearing protection on in the lobby, and he's yelling at everybody, and he doesn't know it. You know, he's just like, it's fun to shoot, and we're like, shh. He's kind of like, have you ever seen the SNL skit with Will Ferrell, where he can't control the sound of his voice? He has what's called voice modulation. It's kind of like that. And then the third guy is the guy that just wants to have a conversation with everybody while you're shooting. So he's just kind of going bay to bay, being like, hey, how we doing today? What are we shooting? And I'm like, well, we're shooting nothing. I'm shooting. Go away. You've literally picked the worst place in the world to have a conversation, okay? So those are the things I don't like. Now, here's the thing I most like about the gun range. Ready? The thing I most like about the gun range is that we're all shooting in the same direction. That's super important. That's my favorite part, is that everybody's shooting in the same direction. It would not work very well if we just went out to a big field and everybody just shot in any direction that they wanted and everybody uh, used their gun however they wanted and they stood wherever they wanted. That would not work out very well. Well, it's kind of like spiritual gifts. These gifts we've been given, they're powerful. But if we don't use them together, if we don't shoot in the same direction, they end up hurting people. We end up not accomplishing our goal. And some of these gifts equip people to be leaders in the church. So there was a time I was at the range, and uh, it was actually an outdoor range. And as everybody's shooting, a cow comes up over the berm and goes down by the targets. Okay? And the instructors and the range safety officers are running out, and they're screaming, cease fire, cease fire, don't shoot, don't shoot. But all of us are thinking, let's shoot the cow, you know? When you've been shooting paper, and all of a sudden you've got a live target, that's, that's pretty exciting. Now, nobody shot the cow, but I'm pretty sure that for about five seconds, you know, you're kind of thinking, 
mm, that's not my cow, right? And those instructors help keep people safe, help keep them shooting in the same direction. We have been given gifts by God. Those gifts have not ceased, but we have to understand what they are. A lot of times churches and people don't, uh, they believe the gifts are still around, as I do, but they uh, don't define them in a biblical way. And so you get a lot of chaos and a lot of people using their gifts that hurt people and they're, they're not shooting in the same direction and it's real disruptive and all these kind of things, okay? Now, look at verse seven again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look at the end of that, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice that it is Christ that gives these gifts, okay? The giftings you have did not come from you. There's no such thing as a self-made man. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says something similar. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here's what I'm saying. Anything you have has been given to you by God. I hate entitlement. I hate it. Because the only thing we're entitled to is hell. Anything that we have other than hell is a gift from God. Anything other than hell is a birthday present from God. So if you think, you know what? I'm pretty financially savvy. I'm pretty good at making money. That is God's gift to you to be used for the church. Oh, yeah, but I worked hard. Well, who determined you'd be the kind of person who works hard? God did. Well, I studied hard in school. Who allowed you to go to school? Who provided that? And then who made you the kind of person where you could retain that information and work hard in school? God did. Uh, But I'm really smart. I'm gifted with a lot of intelligence. It's easy for me to learn and teach. Who decided that you would be intelligent? God did. There's no such thing as a self-made man. You did not decide in your mother's womb that you would be smart or financially savvy, that you would be hospitable, that you would be beautiful, that you would be handsome, that you would be whatever it is, athletic. Everything you have is a gift. Paul would say, what do you have that you did not receive? And his implied answer is nothing. Everything is a gift. Now, verse 8 Therefore, it says, the it there is the Old Testament, the Bible. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, here's what Psalm 68 is about. It is about how Yahweh conquers over his enemies and the ascending it's talking about is him going up onto the temple mount where he goes into the temple and his enemies come and they bring him tribute. They bring him treasure because they've been conquered. That's the context of Psalm 68 about how Yahweh, this divine warrior, conquers his enemies. Paul here applies that text to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is, after all, Yahweh. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He is God, yet he is distinct from the Father. But Paul feels as though it's okay to use this text about Israel's God and apply it to Jesus because he is the second person of the Trinity. And it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. What does that mean? Literally in Greek, it says he led captivity captive, or you could better translate that, he captured prisoners of war. Here's the idea. In antiquity, if I was a general and I conquered a city, okay, I was a general and I conquered a city, those who we didn't kill, we would take as prisoners of war. And when we marched back into our home city, there would be a parade and there would be a celebration. So as I and the general, I as the general walk in and I've got my men behind me, my soldiers, people would cheer and they would throw flowers and they would blow kisses and they would party and they would sing our praises. And then when the the prisoners of war that we had captured came in, the people would boo and they would curse at them and they would spit on them. 
And a lot of times what you would do is you would lead these prisoners of war up to the temple of your gods and you would kill them there in honor of your gods who helped give you victory over that city. Now, here's why I tell you this. Here's what this text is saying. That's exactly what Jesus does to his enemies, demons, through his resurrection and ascension. He puts them to open shame. That's what this text is saying. Can I get on a soapbox for a second? All right, I know I I always sound like I'm on a soapbox, but let me just put another soapbox on top of my previous soapbox, and let me say something that I'm really uh, passionate about. We have a tendency when we talk about God's attributes. What is an attribute of God? An attribute of God is like God's love. God is loving. An attribute of God is like his wrath. God is wrathful. An attribute of God is like his mercy. God is merciful. We have a tendency sometimes to just highlight attributes of God that we like. Let me tell you an attribute of God the Bible talks about a lot, but we never talk about violence. Violence is an attribute of God. Violence is not bad always. There's bad violence, like murder, and there's good violence, like stopping the Nazis, okay? This is why God can command, thou shalt not murder, and then immediately turn around and have the Israelites go kill the Canaanites because murder and killing are different. Righteous violence is an attribute of God. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is a father. But one of the ways God is often described in the Bible is as a warrior. It's what's called the divine warrior theme. God is going to war against his enemies, the devil and demons, and God is crushing them and reconciling the world to himself. That's a huge theme in the Bible, that there's this conflict between two kingdoms, God's kingdom and what's called the domain of darkness. So I'll give you a few examples of this. In the book of Exodus, God's not just delivering some people out of Egypt. He says in Exodus that he is going to war against the gods of Egypt. God is going to war against his enemies, and that's kind of played out down here in the human realm between Israel and Egypt. Think about the plagues. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. So one of the plagues is where God turns the Nile into blood. Why? Because Yahweh is killing the Nile deity. He's going to war against the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worshiped the sun god, Ra. And so guess what God does? He blots out the sun because he is killing Ra. The Egyptians would worship the frog god. And so when the frogs multiply and they can't get it under control, even though they pray to their frog god, it's a reminder that Yahweh rules things here in Egypt, not the frog god. So God is going to war. And so what he does is as God crushes his enemies, as he crushes the demons over Egypt, if you will, he delivers his people out. And he just buries Pharaoh's army in the sea and kills them. And they sing a song of praise to God for being a warrior. Exodus calls God a, quote, warrior. It calls him a, quote, man of war. You see, as God goes to war with his enemies, it brings blessing to God's people. Think, for example, about the Canaanite genocide. You ever wondered why God commands Israel to go into Canaan and kill all these people? Doesn't that seem strange? Well, the reason that seems strange to us is because we don't think in the same worldview a lot of times as they had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's only two kinds of people, okay? There's only two kinds of people. There are, there's Israel and Yahweh, and then there are other nations who follow demons. Okay, let me recap that again. There's only two kinds of people in the Old Testament. You either belong to Israel and you worship Yahweh, or you belong to any other nation and you worship demons. You worship idols. That's it. So when Israel is commanded to go kill the people of Canaan, there is a spiritual battle going on. It's God and his people versus the devil and their people, or the devil and his people, demons and their people, okay? That's what's going on. It's like an Old Testament Jewish jihad. There's this holy war that's going on. God is sending in his people to righteously judge nations who are literally sacrificing their children 
to demons by burning them alive, God rightfully sends in his people to judge them. That's what's going on. And when God is successful, his people flourish. He sits down, if you will, and glories in himself, and people bring him tribute. That's the idea. Now, with that in mind, think about what that means to have Jesus then in the New Testament come onto the scene. When Jesus is going around doing miracles, he's not just doing cool miracles. He's committing acts of war against the devil. When Jesus heals somebody, he has thrown a grenade into the kingdom of darkness. When Jesus casts out a demon, he has called an airstrike against the devil. That's what's going on. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he conquers over sin, death, and the devil. And guess what he does? Like God, in Psalm 68, who ascends up into the temple, Jesus ascends and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Okay? Now, I've sometimes heard people say things like, the God of the Old Testament seems really mean, but the kind Jesus of the New Testament seems really loving. Uh, I hate when people say that. One, because there's only one God. The Trinity of the Old Testament is the Trinity of the New Testament. And two, they seem to forget that Jesus comes back, destroys all his enemies, the blood is up to the horse's bridles, and then he casts his enemies forever into a fiery hell. You see, Jesus, meek and mild, can also be Jesus who brings the pain when he needs to. And so you have what's called the divine warrior theme in the Bible. Let me read you some passages. As I read these passages, I want you to see phrases like destroyed, fighting against the devil. I want you to see things about uh, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. Look for these images as I read these passages. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. By the way, that's a Jewish idiom for angels, in this case, demons. He disarmed the demons and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Through Jesus' death, he destroys the devil. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice the kingdoms in conflict theme here. The domain of darkness versus the kingdom of God's beloved son. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Luke 10, 17 through 19. As Jesus sends out his disciples, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 20, 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all of this, was to fulfill a promise made back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what I'm saying. Yes and amen, the gospel includes the idea of individual salvation as people as individuals put their faith in Jesus. Let's never lose that. That's absolutely true. However, the gospel is a much bigger message than that. The gospel is about something God has done. It's the rule and reign of God and the kingdom of God. It's the fact that God has conquered his enemies and he is getting us back to Eden and because he has been victorious, everything's gonna be okay. Yes, individual salvation is true, but the gospel is a bigger cosmic message of God reestablishing his kingdom, conquering his enemies, reconciling people to himself and getting us back 
to Eden. I think the reason that churches have a tendency to make converts and not disciples is because we preach a gospel that produces converts, justification by faith, instead of a gospel that produces disciples, which is a bigger kingdom of God message. Yes and amen to justification by faith alone. We absolutely believe that. We are Protestant here. Yes and amen to individual salvation, but the gospel is a bigger message about something that's going on with God. To say it another way, your testimony only matters because it's linked to God's testimony. It's linked to what he's doing. He's doing big things, and he lets us be a part of that. Now, look again in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Look at this last part. And he gave gifts to men. Notice he is giving gifts to men here in verse 8. The problem is, is in Psalm 68, 18, where this is quoted, it says this. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Here's my question for you. Why does Psalm 68 say that God receives gifts? And here in uh, verse 8, it says that God gives gifts. Why does it have the exact opposite meaning here in this text? Well, scholars have spilled a lot of ink on this issue. Some say that Paul just accidentally misquotes the psalm. Some say that Paul twists and changes the psalm to say what he wants it to say. Some say that Paul was actually familiar with a later rabbinic tradition that uh, had this idea of Moses going up on the mountain to receive God's law. And so he's actually quoting from that. I think there's a much simpler explanation to this. Why does one text say that God receives something and the other one says that he gives it? And here's the, the simple explanation. I think that God receives everything in the victory of Christ and he gives it because we're Christ followers. Let me give you an example. If I'm a general and I conquer a city, all that treasure belongs to me. But what I then do is I distribute that plunder to my men. That's what God is doing. Jesus, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto him. Okay? But because we are linked to Christ, his grace trickles down from his throne. All the things that he receives trickles down from his throne, and we now have these gifts. That's the idea. Let me give you a little example. So, I like eating fast food. I like eating junk food because my body is a temple. Okay? And I like eating Taco Bell. Now, here's the problem, though. Every time I'm eating Taco Bell, as I'm eating it, I'm thinking to myself, this is a great idea. But as soon as I'm done eating Taco Bell, I think to myself, oh, no, what have I done? There's instant regret. Okay? Because after you eat Taco Bell, you feel awful for the rest of the day. You just want to go home and take like a sweaty nap. You know, you just feel awful. It's kind of like sin. In the moment, it seems like a good idea, but afterwards, you regret it. That's what it's like eating at Taco Bell. There's a saying I like. It's this. It's fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 500 times, your name is Taco Bell. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is Taco Bell made this deal for the NBA Finals, which we had recently, and it was called Steal a Game, Steal a Taco. If one of the teams stole a game on the road, everyone in America would get a free taco. Well, the Golden State Warriors were successful. They stole a game on the road, and therefore everyone in America within a certain time frame got to get a free taco from Taco Bell. Now, here's what I'm saying. All the people going to Taco Bell to get those tacos, did any of them play for the Warriors? Did they hit three-point shots? Did they lead fast breaks? Did they dunk over people? No. The Warriors were successful. The Warriors were victorious and other people benefited from their victory. Grace trickled down from the warrior's throne, if you will. That's kind of the idea here. As Christ has been successful, everything belongs to him, and he gives gifts to his men. He gives gifts to his followers, okay? Now, so far we've seen that Christ gives gifts to the church to build up the church. We've seen that Christ has been victorious over his enemies. Now, 
we get into a very strange verse. Let me ask you this before I read it. What does this verse mean? Why is this verse in the Bible, verse 9? Think about that as we read it. Ready? In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Or you could translate that the lower regions of the earth. Both of those work in Greek. So here's my question. Why does Paul now feel the need, after talking about Christ's ascension and victory, to talk about the fact of some sort of descent? This is a very, 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 very disputed passage in New Testament studies, okay? When you read different scholars and theologians and commentators on Ephesians 4.9, they are all over the map. It's like they all have nine opinions on this verse, and they all contradict each other. It's kind of like reading Amazon reviews. You ever read reviews online? I buy things off Amazon, and let's say I'm buying a pair of shoes. I will often read the reviews to see what people think about those shoes. But here's what's really weird. People seem not to know the point of reviews. They review everything but the shoes, okay? So if I'm going to buy a pair of shoes, I'll look down, and I'll see that somebody rated it one star, and I'll look at it and see why they rated it one star. And they'll say something like, the day my package was delivered, I was sad, so I gave it one star. And I'm like, this isn't where you rate your feelings, This is where you rate the product, okay? Or they'll say, uh, Amazon is a big company, and big companies are bad, so I gave it one star. And I'm like, this is not where you rate Amazon or your political opinions. This is where you rate the shoes, the product. Or they'll say something like, I bought these shoes, and they didn't match my pants. I mean, change your pants or rate the shoes. Your mismatched coordination is not the shoe's fault. All right, And so what we see here is that people have a tendency to be all over the place. And it's the same way with this verse. People are talking about all kinds of things this verse could mean. So let's walk through some of these things. This is difficult. Bear with me. Everybody take a big breath. We're going to do a little theology in here together. It's going to be excellent. Let me give you four things that some people think that this passage could mean and some of my thoughts on each. Okay. Number one, some people think that this passage is a reference to the Spirit descending. So what some scholars will say is Jesus ascended, and then he gave the Spirit, and at Pentecost, the Spirit gave gifts. Now, by the way, that's true theologically. Elsewhere in the Bible, it is true that Christ ascends, gives the Spirit, the Spirit gives gifts. Yes and amen, that's true theologically, okay? They'll say that's what this passage is talking about, though. I have a problem with that mainly because of verse 10. Here's what verse 10 says. He who descended is the one who also ascended. So here it seems that this passage is talking about the ascending and descending being Christ himself specifically, okay? Yes, he sends the Spirit to give gifts, but that's just not what this verse is talking about, okay? Number two, another group of people will say that when this text says that Christ descended, that it is a reference to Jesus descending into hell after his death to proclaim his victory over demons or something like that. Sometimes people think he's undergoing further punishment, but there's this idea that Jesus is going to hell, okay? Now, we need to talk about the difference between hell and Hades in just a second, but let's just stay on hell for a second, all right? So some people think this is a reference to Jesus descending to hell. A few problems with that. Number one, that's not really clearly taught anywhere else in Scripture. There are some passages people try to use about that that aren't really about that. There are some passages that might hint to Jesus doing something after he dies, one of the which I'll talk about in a second. But it, there's no long extended discourse really explaining that like there is about you know, the resurrection or something like that. 
okay? Number two, the context in this, in this passage here in Ephesians is about Christ ascending to heaven, so its corollary seems to be the earth. The heaven-earth contrast is very common in Ephesians. We're to walk righteously down here on earth, though we're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies, okay? That heaven-earth contrast is popular in Ephesians. And then I have another problem with this idea of Jesus going to what we typically think of as hell, right? So when we typically think of as hell, we think of Gehenna. We think of the lake of fire. We think of a place of punishment, We think of like Dante's Inferno and like the Middle Ages view of hell, something like that, okay? The problem I have here is in Luke 23, 43, it says this, as Jesus is talking to the criminal on the cross, he says, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then again, in verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it seems like he's not saying to this guy on the cross that he's going to go down to hell after this. The idea of Christ descending into hell became really popular not through just some sort of teaching in the Bible. It became really popular through the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. What is a creed? A creed is just a statement of faith. It's a summary of your faith. You can't just say, I believe the Bible, because everybody will say that. A Mormon will say that. A Jehovah's Witness will say that. I mean, all kinds of people, cults and sects and all kinds of things will say they believe the Bible. You have to say what the Bible means. And so we summarize what we think the Bible means in what are called creeds. One of the earliest Christian Christian creeds is what is called the Apostles' Creed. It was written in about 200 A.D. There is a line in the Apostles' Creed that says that Christ descended into hell. Here's the problem with that. That's not originally in the Apostles' Creed. It was not added until a guy named Rufinus added it in 390 AD. And when Rufinus added it, he didn't even mean that Christ descended into hell. He just meant that Christ went down into death, that he descended to Hades, that he descended to the realm of the dead. So that phrase doesn't occur originally in the Apostles' Creed. And when it's added, it doesn't even mean that. And it doesn't become standardized in the creed until 650 A.D., so hundreds of years after it's written, okay? So I don't think that Christ descended in what we typically think of as like a Dante's Inferno hell, okay? Number three, some people think that where it talks about Christ descending here, it's a reference to his incarnation. The same Jesus that ascended after the resurrection was the same Jesus that came down to become incarnated. The second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, comes down at the incarnation, and he takes on a second nature. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, being fully God and fully man, okay? So what some people will think is that this is, and by the way, I think this might very well be the the meaning of this text. This is probably the right view here, that it's a reference to his incarnation. The same Jesus that ascended was the same Jesus that came down. That's a much simpler explanation. When it says here that he descended to the lower regions, literally in Greek, of the earth, You can take that as what's called a genitive of apposition. That's technical. You don't have to remember that. Here's what that means, though. If I say to you the city of Dallas, that means the city that is Dallas. The city equals Dallas. That's how the ESV translators have taken it. That's how a very famous Greek scholar named Dan Wallace takes it. That very well might be right. The lower regions of the universe, namely the earth. That's why the ESV here has lower regions, comma, the earth. It treats the earth as equal with the lower regions. Additionally, we have this idea of ascending and descending elsewhere in the Bible as referencing Christ going up and then coming down to earth. John 3, 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay? So I think you can make a strong case for this being about the incarnation, but I want to add one more thing that I think is really important. When Paul 
talks about Christ ascending and Christ being resurrected, in his theology, it often includes this idea of Jesus conquering Hades, conquering the grave. So that idea might very well be in Paul's mind, the idea that Jesus is conquering Hades. So let's back up real quick. Let's do a little, little theological pop quiz for you. In the Old Testament, where do you go when you die? You'd be surprised the answers you get from people on this. Where do you go when you die in the Old Testament? Answer, you go to a place called Sheol. We often say Sheol. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. Sheol is seen as the realm of the dead. It's oftentimes equated with the grave or equated with death. It's kind of the abode of the dead. It's kind of this shadowy nether region, this shadowy nether world. And both the righteous and the unrighteous go to Sheol. There's like a righteous part of Sheol and an unrighteous part of Sheol, okay? And it's kind of this waiting room for resurrection. Well, in Greek, we translate the word Sheol as Hades. Hades is not hell. Don't confuse those. When we think of hell, we think of something like burning forever, lake of fire, Gehenna, something like this. Hades is the realm of the dead, okay? The realm of the dead. So is it true to say that Jesus descended down into the grave, that he, in a sense, went to Hades? Yes, I think it is. That's why Revelation will say that uh, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. But the focus on the Bible, now follow me on this, the focus on the Bible, though, is not something that Jesus goes and does in Hades. It's the fact that he's conquered Hades by the resurrection. That's the big thing that he does that conquers Hades, okay? So let me just summarize all this real quick. Is this passage talking about the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost? Probably not. That's a true concept theologically. That's probably not what this passage is talking about. Is this passage talking about Jesus descending into what we think of as hell? No, I don't think so. Is this passage talking about incarnation? Probably. And is there included this idea that Jesus did go to Hades and conquered over Hades, the grave, where dead people go? Yes. Yes. Now, here's the million-dollar question, though. Does Jesus do anything in Hades? There's one passage in the Bible, 1 Peter 3, that says that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. The problem with that is that we don't really know what that means. Scholars are divided. Some people think the meaning of that passage is it's talking about how Noah preached Christ to those who were disobedient in his day. It takes the spirits there to be human spirits. The alternate interpretation is that the spirits that Jesus preaches to are demonic spirits, specifically those disobedient in the days of Noah, those in Genesis 6 who go down and mess with human women. So, just to summarize... Is this passage have a strong, probably, probable, most likely about incarnation? I think so. Is there, in Paul's mind, the idea of Christ being raised up from the lower regions of the earth? Does that include the idea of Christ conquering over Hades? Yes, I think so. Does Jesus do anything in Hades, or does he just conquer it with the resurrection? I don't know. You'll have to wait till we get to 1 Peter to deal with that, that issue, okay? Finally, verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. When the Bible says, and you see this a lot in Ephesians, that Christ is going to fill all things, that God will become all in all, that doesn't mean that God like becomes everything or something weird. The idea is that everything will be under God's reign, that everything will be under God's reign. Okay, let me give you an example. I love the Texas Rangers. Okay, can I get an amen? I didn't get enough amens. I need more amens. 
I love the Texas Rangers, God's team. And, uh, and the Rangers have never won the World Series yet. All right, I'm hopeful. All right, I have assurance of things hoped for. I'm hopeful that they will eventually win. They went a few years ago, two years in a row, to the World Series, and they lost both times. It was heartbreaking. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the Rangers win the World Series, think about what the city of Arlington will look like. There will be flags with the Rangers on it. There will be bumper stickers with the Rangers on it. There will be a parade with the team where they go through the town. All across Arlington, fathers will be playing catch with their sons in the front yard because the Rangers have been victorious. That's kind of the idea here. Because Christ has been victorious, his glory, his reign, his renown is spreading over the earth. And one of the ways he does that is through his church. The church is kind of like, everywhere there's a, a biblical orthodox church, it's kind of like a, uh, like a little military base of the kingdom of God as we push back against what is dark. Now, what are, what are the applications of this text? I know you're thinking, okay, wait a second. We talked about Jesus descending into hell. We talked about some sort of scary violence, divine warrior theme. All I re- really remember that you said was something about Taco Bell and how now I want to eat Taco Bell for lunch, even though you said not to. That's, that's really where we're at. What, what is the application to us today from this text? Well, let me give you two of them, okay? The first one is this. Find out the ways you have been gifted by God and use those for the sake of the church. Some of you have uh, just a gift of being able to make money. You just have a gift of generosity. You can turn nickels into dimes. That's a gift given to you by God. Use that to edify the church and build up the church. Some of you have a gift of evangelism. You love hanging out with lost people. It's easy for you. It's not awkward. Do that. Hang out with a ton of lost people. When the time's right, in a non-awkward way, share the gospel with them. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. You love inviting people into your home. You love feeding them sweets and just watching them get bigger. You love it. You just love watching them get bigger as you give them more sweets. Use that gift. Bring in your neighbors. Invite your lost coworkers over for dinner. Hang out with them. But everybody look at me. This is really, really important. Okay? Look at me. This is important. You do not need us to provide you a platform, a stage, a class, a ministry, or a job title for you to do that. If you feel called to evangelism, we don't need to start an evangelism ministry. You just go do evangelism, okay? Most of your giftings will not be used on Sunday mornings here at the church. They will be used Monday through Saturday in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, around friends and family. I get to talk to a lot of young guys that are training for ministry, and every once in a while, a young buck will come up from seminary, and he'll say something like this, Zach, I think that God has called and gifted me to teach. And so I'll say to him, "Uh, then who are you teaching right now? And this guy will typically say something like, well, I'm not teaching anyone now, but one day I'll preach to thousands. And I say, oh, okay, that's idolatry. That's you wanting to exalt yourself when you have a big platform. You see, if God's really called you to teach, you'll find a way to teach whether you have a platform or not. When I've been out of ministry just at a secular job, I just would start a Bible study in my office because I feel like God's called me to teach. So don't think, if the only way you can use your gift is if you're given a platform, you probably don't have that gift, okay? Additionally, a lot of times we just need to serve where there's a need in the church, whether we think we have that quote-unquote gift or not, okay? If everybody's only serving in areas where they feel like they're using their gifts, there's probably some needs at the church that are going unmet, You don't have to have the spiritual gift of opening a door. You just open a door and say hi to visitors. 
I don't think Jesus has the spiritual gift of foot washing. In fact, he's probably better at a lot of other things. But that's not the point. He washes feet because he's a servant and we're not better than Jesus. And so if you want to know where is God calling you to serve, ask where is there a need? That's where he's calling you. Not just where you always feel like you have a gifting in it. Okay? And then number two, I'll end with this. What is the point in the application of the fact that Christ has been victorious and he has conquered over his enemies and these kind of things? So let me tell you this. This is nothing new. This is nothing novel. Uh, This is just basic Christianity 101. Here's what it is. Because Christ has been successful to defeat his enemies, if you know Christ, the story ends well for you. I'm not promising you won't suffer. You are suffer. If you're a Christian, you're gonna hurt. But in the long run, you win. In the long run, you win. What are you most afraid of? Are you most afraid of death, getting cancer, something like that? Because this text means that Christ conquered the grave, and one day you will too. Are you afraid of the devil and spiritual attack? You are, you're, you're a little bit superstitious all the time. You're a little bit afraid that the, the mighty devil might come in and just conquer you. This text says that Christ has defeated the devil. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Okay? Are you afraid of going to hell, being condemned? Listen, if you're a Christian, that's not a real fear for you. Your worst fear of going to hell, if you're a Christian, is not a reality for you if you know Christ. Do you have a fear that, oh, man, what if I lose something I love? What if I lose my job, my house? What if I lose a loved one, a spouse, a child, a family member? Christ promises that he will be with you if you do lose those things and that he is enough. The promise is not that you don't suffer as a Christian. The promise is that you don't suffer alone, that God will never leave you or forsake you. Are you afraid of falling away? Well, here's the good news, that no one can pluck you out of Jesus' hand. You can't be separated from his love through famine or nakedness or sword or anything. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So what I'm saying to you is, this text, though it seems very heady and theological, is actually the most practical because it's theological. Whatever you're dealing with, struggling with, frustrated with, Jesus is the solution. He is the answer. He is the way to help. You have a bad marriage, cry out to Jesus. You have doubt and anxiety, cry out to Jesus. You struggle with something, cry out to Jesus. You're stuck in some sort of sinful, lustful struggle, cry out to Jesus. Whatever it is, he has been successful. He has freed you. Don't carry around broken chains. That's the point of this text. You see, because Christ has been victorious, if you're linked to Christ, grace trickles down from his throne and everything ultimately is going to be okay. How good is God? As I pray, the men are gonna come forward to uh, distribute the elements for communion. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are great. We thank you for sending Christ, the second person of the Trinity, your son, to Take on flesh to become a man while remaining God and to live the life we should have lived and to die on a cross, the death we deserve to die, and to conquer over sin, death, and the devil through his resurrection. We thank you that you have sat him at your right hand and that he is reigning and ruling now. We thank you that you're going to send Christ again and one day to finish the kingdom that he's already inaugurated. And we will dance and laugh in the streets because a, a, a garden has become a city. A garden where God and man dwell together has become a city where God and man dwell together. That's our hope. We thank you for giving us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he convicts us of sin and he convicts us of righteousness and he guides us and he grows us in holiness. 
We love you, our one God who is a trinity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.